friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 15, The Reenchantment of Art. <sighs> Enchantment. <laughs> Doesn't that just like conjure up images of like Cinderella and fairy godmothers and um, I mean, it does for me at least. And, um, but I want to talk about that word and I want to talk about it in terms of, of art making and creative things and making things and imagining things and bringing things forward into the world. Um, and I want to make a case for enchantment especially with the things that we make, but I would also argue in the ways that we live. Um, and I feel like this idea, at least in this episode, is going to expand upon some of the things I talked about in episode uh, 14, which was um, one of the topics was that it can feel sometimes like when times are really uncertain, at least at least for me, honestly, um, and then times are so uncertain right now, so, <clears throat> excuse me, oddly uncertain that it's like not a time for enchantment. Like if anything, that it's the worst time for enchantment, that we don't have time for mystical, magical fairy dust crap, like that. There's a sense at the moment, I don't know if y'all agree, but I know I feel it, that's like sense that like our library finds have been overdue for too freaking long. I have no idea why that metaphor just came up, but <laughs> like there's this idea that um, we don't have the luxury to just like twiddle our thumbs that that we have to do the work. And, and this idea is sort of like all over the media and social media worlds right now. Like we, you know, like lots and lots of calls for this kind of action and this kind of work and this kind of inner work. And it's dizzying to hear it. And I, I would like to suggest that they're not wrong. Um, and that the idea of injecting some enchantment into our spaces doesn't have to run in diametrical opposition to those calls for action and those calls for work rather maybe more of an expansion on those ideas because um to me this is a time when enchantment and magic and slowing down and getting really quiet is really what we need to do and because that feel, I mean, because that feels so radical, even it feels radical even for me to say in this podcast, and I really believe in it, <laughs> I want to make a case for it through a few stories, but also, as always, take what resonates with you, leave the rest. This is something that I've been thinking about pretty recently, and it is probably in some ways unfleshed out, and um, so parts of it may make may be grounded in reality and some parts may not I don't know um but I want to talk about enchantment um so I just I recently reordered this book 
that I read in grad school called The Reenchantment of Art by Susan Gablick. It's an awesome book. It's um, her case for injecting magical, magical mysticism back into not just our lives, but our art making. And she talks a lot about how modernity and modernism in the early 20th century really stripped our art making and also our lived experiences of a lot of deeper meaning um, and ushered in this age of hyper individualism, right? Like we do everything on our own and our individual genius and artists work by themselves and everything is very cold and, um, and, and intellectual, right? Like that, that if you want to inject some airy fairy into your work, it just wouldn't be taken seriously, right? Like it was not even a pejorative necessarily. It was just irrelevant. Magic was irrelevant. And so it was therefore really stripped away from a lot of our experience in the last century. And she, it's interesting, right? Because if y'all read this book, fair warning, it's really cerebral which is ironic right because she she's making a case for enchantment by using highly highly intellectual language in this book and I'm not totally convinced that that was an accident right I wonder if it was intentional that in order to be taken seriously especially in academic circles she had to write about this topic very academically and but if if you don't mind that kind of language, it's a fascinating book. And it's interesting because I have been thinking about rereading this book and I had lost my copy and so I reordered it. And weirdly in tandem with this, this book, which I think is going to arrive, honestly, tomorrow. Sorry, that was an irrelevant point to share with you in this podcast. (laughs) Um, But I've also been taking weekly trips uh, out to Enchanted Rock, which for those of you in Austin are familiar, um, and those of you outside of Austin, it's, uh, or Texas, more like it's, um, Enchanted Rock is a state park about two hours west of Austin in Hill Country, And it's a a bald rock. So it's like this bulging stone coming out of the earth, completely smooth in a lot of places with very few trees, especially on the top. And it gets its name from Native Americans that um, believed that this site is magic. And there's lots of reasons for the stories behind Enchanted Rock. One of them being that, especially in the summertime, the rock it's incredibly hot in the Texas sun and um, expands in the heat. And then in the evening, as it rapidly cools down, it starts to groan and creak. And the natives felt like this place was incredibly magical, um, not just, but not just because of the noises, that there were lots of other stories about very mysterious things happening in this space and that it was highly sacred to them. And sometimes I feel a little sad, honestly, when I go because sometimes it can be really crowded and there's like all these tourists on the top just like taking pictures of each other and decidedly not magical, (laughs) right? But 
um, little tip that I'm sharing with all of you that listen to this. Um, if you do go to Enchanted Rock and do some of the, the lower trails, like the loop trail that's around the base or, um, the Turkey pass, Turkey pass, I'm pretty sure that goes, it's more of like a mid-level trail that goes, um, along the one side, um, you'll, you'll probably almost see nobody, especially when it's summertime. And those areas of Enchanted Rock are distinctly magical. Like something is a hundred percent there. And so I've been thinking about this idea of magic because, And, I, and I've been thinking about the case for magic and the case for enchantment. Is there a case to be made for using enchantment as a lens for making business decisions, making life decisions, um, navigating your day even? I, I want to say yeah. I want to say yeah. And I want to talk a, a little bit about my experience with this. Um, specifically because the sense that I get is that there's, <sighs> let me tangent. If y'all don't know, it is, what is it? It's 8.30 on Sunday night. I'm exhausted. And I feel like I need to say that out loud because normally I like the stories just flow. And this time it's like, what am I saying? (laughs) Um, and it's definitely going up on the podcast this way because I'm going to bed after this. (laughs) Um, let me, let me backpedal a little and tell you this story first. So this story to me is an example of, I guess what I mean when I say, is there a case for viewing life through an enchanted lens. Is enchantment and magic a meaningful way of viewing the world? Um, So when I first moved to Austin in 2010, um, I've talked about this in past episodes, it was a really tumultuous time. I was going through a lot of transition. And when I moved to Austin, I was feeling a lot of concern that maybe I had made the wrong decision. I had uprooted a lot of things in my life in Ohio to come here. And there, and everything was uncertain and nothing could be predicted. And I was feeling really uncomfortable with that. And then when I got here, which was kind of synchronistic and, and awesome, was that I moved here in June of 2010 and school didn't start until August. So I had this like two-month window where I was mostly alone. Like I had a few friends, but I really didn't know anybody. And so I got to spend this like unprecedented amount of alone time with myself and I was 30. So it was decidedly better than like when you're in high school, right? And you have like the summer off and you have all this time, but you're like 16 and you have no context for how awesome that is (laughs) until you're old. So It was really beautiful because I was 30. I had been working this really, really high stress job for six years. And all of a sudden I was just plunged into this glorious, this glorious quiet, 
like I, it was the most quiet existence. I would wake up to the sun coming in my room. I didn't even have a TV. I just would just like wake up to the sun. I would have coffee and listen to the birds on this patio of this just very generic apartment in North Austin. And but it was it was my apartment, and it was nobody was like demanding anything from me because I didn't know anybody. And every day, I would just kind of float through the day exactly how I wanted. And for some people that would be incredibly lonely. For me, it was delicious. It was so (laughs) lovely. And so I remember this two month period very vividly. Like I have very vivid memories from it because I was just really present, I think for it. And one of the experiences I had during this time was I had this dream. It was so vivid that I I could tell you verbatim about it even now a decade later. Um, In the dream, I was driving through probably what honestly looked like West Texas, although I had not been to West Texas by this point. Um, It was just wide open spaces. I was in a Jeep without a top on it, and I was pedal to the metal driving as fast as I could away from this tornado that was bearing down on, on my car. And I knew immediately like I'm not gonna make it like and and then and then the tornado hits the jeep and I'm sucked up through the top into the storm and as I'm starting to spin I hear this voice that says just relax it's gonna be okay and it was like not a voice I I've I've talked about this before it was not a voice I heard in my ears right it was like just like a voice that I heard in my being I think and and so I did. I just went like a rag doll. I'm getting tossed all over the place. But what was so fascinating about this dream was that I was overcome with this feeling of total peace, like that I was not going to get hurt if I just chilled out. So I get tossed around this storm. I get shot out the bottom of it. I mean, like it's kind of, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have had dreams about tornadoes. They're so archetypal, you know, like they're so emblematic of things that we go through in our lives. So this dream might very well be something that you can relate to, but I came out the bottom of the storm and I am just thrown into this field on my back. The storm immediately dissipates. The sky is this beautiful, like Robin's egg blue. It's like the sun is just warm on my face. It's so quiet. All of the rushing wind is gone. And I'm immediately overwhelmed by this feeling that this field is totally different than the field I was just driving in before the tornado, that I have been dumped out like Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore type of deal, right? And I start to kind of like, I'm laying on my back, but I kind of like tilt my head side to side and I see other things like tires and cars and I, and I see an airstream on its side and there's just apparently like a lot of things have been dumped into this field. And I, and then I feel a hand like reach out and touch my fingers through the grass. Cause I'm just like laying on my back and I look over and I see this guy and he helps me up. He's wearing a suit, which is kind of out of place. And he seems very friendly. And then I wake up and it was a comforting dream. I, I mean, it was, it left me with this feeling of, not just peace, but also permission. Because prior to 
moving to Austin, I had just been really trying to control everything. And I I mean, and maybe that's a dramatic way to put it. I think a lot of people have experience with living life through a lens of control, you know, like, um, I don't know if y'all were like, um, have I been saying like a lot? I always go back and listen to some of these recordings. And on some days when I'm really formulating a story, I'll say like a bajillion times and there's no way for, I have no patience to edit it out. So then I just leave it. And I feel like, I feel like (laughs) I sound like a Valley girl. (laughs) Like, so sorry if that's been happening. Um, I'll try to rein it in, but I, I, if y'all can remember when you were young, um, probably for me, it was third grade. I think I remember being shown how to do my first outline and subsequent research paper. And I'm pretty sure mine was on polar bears, (laughs) right? But do y'all remember this? It was, you know, here's this, the title of my report. And then you would do like the Roman numerals, you know, number one, And then this is the first topic of my report. And then you would put the A underneath. And this is the first sub-theme. And then here's the bullet points with all the things I want to say about the sub-theme. And then, okay, Roman numeral number two. This is the second topic. You know, like, you all can relate. It, It was such a helpful skill to learn when it came to researching and outlining a large thing, you know, that you're about to make. But I think it leaves us, at least it did me, and I, th- I think many adults with this impression that that's how we should approach all big things, including our lives, right? If I outline my life, then I can execute it. Yeah, <laughs> it's so simple. And sometimes that does work. And and that can be really comforting and then seductive because it can give us the sense that that's how we should always approach life. And I'm sure most people listening to this can relate when I say that most of the time an outline doesn't work (laughs) when it comes to moving through your life in a way that is meaningful to you. Maybe an outline works if you're moving through life in a way that looks really sweet and shiny to others. But, you know, my guess is if you're listening to this podcast, that's not something you're jamming on. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And so I had been really working with the outline, you know, up until this point. And then I moved to Austin on this whim and I had this dream and I was really ready to have permission to, even if it was from a dream, to just let go, you know, let go, let God. I, <laughs> um, I chuckle because it's such an overused statement. And also the word God is such a pejorative in some ways, but it's an interesting idea, isn't it? You know, when it's not hyperbole, it's really a fascinating idea. What happens when you get really chill? Like what happens when you ragdoll your life? 
And one of the things I started to notice going forward is that when you, I don't know if refuse is the right word, but I'm going to use it. When you refuse, when you insist upon letting life live through you, there's this different quality that's much more gentle. And so here, I guess, is an elaboration on what I mean when I say that. So so I have this dream. It's probably July of 2010 if we're trying to make a timeline. And then, and then yeah, I embark into my first year in Austin very organically. I have no idea what to expect. So everything is just a let's see what sticks, right? And it was wonderful. It was, it surpassed what I ever thought and more. I would spend my days at UT talking about art education with like-minded people. I would bike all around campus and have fresh juice and go to the farmer's market and all the hippie things. And then I would go home and shower and, and drive downtown and wait tables at PF Chang's and there was a bunch of interesting people that worked there, lots of musicians and other creatives, and I would meet lots of fascinating people that were coming to eat, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful life. I loved, I loved my life. And while I was at P.F. Chang's one night, I, I waited on a woman who happened to work at the Four Seasons in Austin. For those of you that live in Austin, um, the Four Seasons is right, just right by P.F. Chang's. And I had worked at the Four Seasons um, about seven years prior when I lived in Florida. And so I immediately started a conversation with her and she impressed upon me that I should apply. And so I did. I, 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 it felt, <laughs> if I know I'm, I feel maybe a little T- tired using this phrase, but it felt like a sign to <laughs> apply at the Four Seasons. And so I went and I submitted my resume and I ended up immediately in my first interview with the general manager of the restaurant in the Four Seasons, which was shocking to me, honestly, because I had been a pool server and a cocktail server at the Four Seasons in Florida. I had no restaurant experience at that level and he was this like tall, gregarious, bombastic, probably Jewish man. And he never called me by my first name. It's like, Borelli, you're awesome. I know you don't have experience, but I really feel like you're going to be a great fit. If you're ready to take it on, we want to have you here. And I, I just was, okay, well, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to like relax into the tornado here, I guess. And... So I come in on my first day for training and my trainer is introducing me to, you know, everyone like this is the sous chef and the chef de partie and all the people. And then, and then they introduce me to the sommelier, the head of the wine program in the restaurant. And, and y'all, it was that fucking guy from my dream a year prior in the field after the tornado. And I, I've actually, I realized as I was getting ready to record this episode, I've never told this story out loud. And I certainly never told him. It was so weird and creepy. Um, 
but I also just didn't even really have a reason to tell anybody. I, it, and it should have been more disturbing. <laughs> like it was him. It, it was him. It was his face. It was everything. It was his likeness, his energy. It was, it was, it was weird, but it wasn't. It was the, I got the sense that something synced. And I know, I, I know people hearing that story might think, wow, this guy, he must be, you know, a huge part of your life or he, there must be a sign or something. No, he's no part of my life. We worked together for a year and a half. We had no friendship other than a professional one, kind of. And then I left the Four Seasons and then he left not long after that. And I ran into him like maybe three years ago at another restaurant he was working at. And I haven't seen him since. Like it it was, I'm pretty sure the dream wasn't about him. I think the dream was uh, an example of when you relax into your life, you get to see this other thing that's operating behind the curtain, which is an interesting metaphor if we're talking about tornadoes and Dorothy and Oz and <laughs> right that that there's something else making stuff with you if you can chill and get and get quiet. And what is that thing? You know, Susan Gablick talks a little bit in this book about enchantment, but she never gets religious or even spiritual. She's mostly just saying there's more to this world than we know. And artists especially brush up against that thing all all the time. And in those brushes with that thing, I started to notice that the guidance was decidedly different than the guidance I got when I was making an outline, right? Like when the guidance came from me, right? Like when I was trying to make a decision of, should I take this serving job? Should I wait tables after grad school? Should I become a sign painter at Trader Joe's? Can I work for myself? Is it okay as a 35-year-old to keep acting like a 25-year-old? These were, these were questions that I asked myself often. And as I would analyze my decisions using my cerebral energy, the tone of those inner dialogues was always pretty rough, I would say. There was a tone of, you got to get your shit together. Um, you don't want to fuck this up. <laughs> I think, I don't know if y'all can relate to hearing that tone in the collective right now, but I'm hearing it all over social media. We need to be better. We need to do better. We need to da-da-da. We need to da-da-da. You need to da-da-da. And it's not that that isn't true because that anger comes from a really legitimate place. And 
It's not the voice to listen to when you're trying to create something better. That's the voice to, that's the voice to listen to when you're trying to destroy something that sucks. And that's fine for that, but when you're making something as an artist that's new and better, that's not the voice that I've, in my experience, ever helps even a little bit. It's this very gentle, soft voice that says, just relax. And, and then when... <clears throat> Or if, maybe is a better way of putting it, if I'm able to do that. These little synchronicities and signs start to happen. Like meeting the man in my dream a year later. (laughs) Y'all. That's a very gentle sign that is impossible to ignore. And I started to look for this enchantment everywhere. And I started to base my decision-making and my business on it. And it works. It works. It, it, it doesn't just work in my business. It works in my life. It works in my relationships. It works in my day-to-day comings and goings. Um, here's an example. So when I went to Enchanted Rock the last time... <clears throat> I sat down in this secluded part of the rock just to soak in the energy. It was glorious. It was um, an over, it was, there was lots of clouds, but the sky was still blue. So it was a beautiful day, but it wasn't hot. It was probably only like 83 degrees. Um, I was savoring the moment. And while I was sitting there drinking and enjoying the, the solitude, I heard a canyon wren which I had never heard this far east. Um, canyon wrens are a type of small bird wren <laughs> that is more indigenous to the west coast of the United States. And the most inland they come is West Texas. And some maps show them coming in as far as hill country. And, but I had never, I'd only heard them in Big Bend National Park. I'd never, and if y'all haven't heard a canyon run, you can Google their song. It's, it's beautiful and haunting. It's this sort of descending scale of notes and it ends with like a squawk. (laughs) It's so, it's so special and beautiful and magical. And the first time I heard it, I was entranced by it, you know? And they live in the side of canyons and rocks. And so it made sense as I was sitting in Enchanted Rock that I heard one. And I was immediately struck by this feeling that I needed to pay attention to the canyon wren. That the canyon wren was a sign. That the canyon wren was talking to me. Now, to be fair... I'm really open to this idea. I'm very, very into this idea. And still, there's a part of me that feels silly telling you this right now. <laughs> that, that, but I was overcome by this sense that I was being given a message through the Canyon Run song. And that's why it had caught my attention and that I needed to pay more close eye to it. And I pulled out my journal and I was journaling about it. 
I got home that evening, I looked up more about Canyon Runs online and it was really cool. They, um, are incredibly hard birds to see. They live in the sides and small crevices in the rocks and most people just hear them. It's very rare to see one. Um, and the thing that was really interesting was that Hopi Indians viewed Canyon Wren as really powerful animal totems that Canyon Wrens, in spite of their really tiny size and delicate nature, were warriors and were signs and emblems of courage. And that when you saw one, you were being given a sign that you would have courage to face something. And that they were also um, signs of being a warrior, which is really cool. These little tiny birds. And Hopi Indians made kachina dolls of canyon wrens as a symbol of being a warrior and having courage. And I took this with me. I just thought this is something I am I need to remember. This is the enchantment of going through your day believing in magic, by the way. <laughs> so I know I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I want to talk about this idea grounded in decision-making because I literally have started using this type of stuff to make decisions. And so I, I kind of forget about this. I, you know, a month later, I end up taking this trip to West Texas. I was supposed, I, as I said in last week's episode, I ended up going alone because Jason had to stay back. And on my final hike, my final solo hike in Big Bend National Park, I decided to do a really solitary trail. Um, and I, I, y'all know I have some nerves around hiking solo to begin with, especially out there in the middle of nowhere. And it was, but it was this beautiful trail that descended down into a slot canyon and it was completely doable. It was a mile and a half down and a mile and a half out or something. But I get maybe a quarter of a mile or half a mile in and I stop and I sit down and I'm having some snacks and I'm trying to get myself up. Um, That it's very vulnerable being in one of the most remote places (laughs) in the state or possibly the lower 50 states by yourself. Um, If something happened, I was totally alone. And... And just the courage to continue the hike was, you know, it was requiring a lot of my nerves. Let's, you know, be honest. And as I was eating this snack and um, if I'm being honest with you, getting ready to turn around and hike back out, I see something come at me out of the periphery of my left eye and I freak out and I jump and I spin around because mountain lions, (laughs) And y'all, it was a fucking canyon wren sitting sitting maybe two feet from my head. They're beautiful, beautiful birds. And it was looking right at me. I'm not kidding. I'm not, I know it sounds dramatic as I tell this story, but I mean it with zero drama when I say that this bird was giving me the same look that my dog Layla gives me when she's trying to tell me to do the right thing. (laughs) For those of you that know Layla, she's a border collie mix She's incredibly, um, what's the word? 
routined in her life. There's a right way to do life, according to Layla. And if you deviate, she will give you this look like you need to do the right thing. It's hysterical. Jason and I laugh about it all the time. And I'm telling you, this bird was giving me this look. Do do the thing, Becca. It's like, have the courage. I'm here. And I was, so I stood up and I, and so I keep hiking. It was awesome. It was a beautiful, beautiful hike. It's my favorite hike that I've done in Big Bend so far. Possibly, arguably my favorite hike ever. It's hard for me to imagine liking a hike better than this one. It was so special. And as I get down into almost the end of the Slack Canyon, so you're getting deeper and deeper into this canyon. As I'm getting closer to the end, all of a sudden, I've never experienced anything like this. It gives me goosebumps just talking about it. All of the birds, including the canyon wrens, which when you're out in the middle of nowhere are incredibly loud because there's no other competing sounds. So you hear the birds just very, very loudly. Immediately, all of them stopped at one time. And I I remember standing in total like stillness and I was listening and straining and I couldn't hear a single bird anymore. They just all stopped. And it felt like the birds were like, this, no. <laughs> and I and I turned around and I walked right out of that slack canyon, like as fast as I could. And I would say probably about 100 to 200 feet back up the other direction, the birds started singing again. And I started to feel kind of silly, but I'll tell you what, when I got back to my Airbnb, I was talking to my Airbnb host and she said, girl, when the birds stop, you get out. (laughs) She said, they usually only stop if there's a predator nearby. Um, And And she said, to be honest, it very well could have been that the predator was you. She goes, but if you'd been hearing them the whole time, I'm glad you listened to the birds. And to me, maybe that's, maybe there's an argument to be made against that. Like, is that magic? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just, just science. (laughs) But, um, I weirdly walk around my life attaching meaning to everything now. You know, a bird singing in the side of Enchanted Rock is a message for me. Everything is is a message. What happens when you live your life that way? It's Maybe it's a tired way of describing it, or maybe it's a beautiful way of describing it, depending on how you look at it. Something that Albert Einstein famously said, there's two ways of living your life. One is if everything is a miracle and one if nothing is a miracle. And I wonder too if what happens if everything is art, everything is magic, everything is creative. And what, what changes when you start viewing the world that way, you know? I I have made employment decisions this way. I've made budgeting decisions this way. I made my studio decisions this way. I make, it's just, it's, and the reason that I started to really enjoy 
using these really mystical, magical, so-called signs to make decisions, especially in business, which felt so like, I don't even know if dangerous is the right word, but it felt kind of like cool in a bad way to make business decisions using, you know, signs from the universe. That just felt cool to do that. But aside from maybe the more hippie, you know, woo-woo sort of ideas attached to doing that, the thing that I noticed is that when you relax and get quiet and get slow and pay a lot of attention to the signs, the, the things that come into your space, the the thoughts that bubble up into your mind that would be way more random when you're busy, but when you're quiet, suddenly you realize their guidance. Those messages, if that's the word you want to use to describe them, are have never, ever led me astray. Um, and... And they're quiet. I guess that's maybe the point I'm trying to get at with these stories is that when when making a decision to descend into the Slack Canyon, using my analysis was about to cause me to go the other direction. And then this gentle little bird just, you know, and that guidance felt very soft and decidedly impossible to ignore. You know, kind of like that dream about the tornado, you know? What is it about listening to that stuff? I don't, I don't totally know. Like, does this feel a little bit all over the place? Does it feel like this weird artist who you may or may not know is telling you to just like, throw caution to the wind and listen to birds and, you know, vibe with the rocks and, you know, yeah, probably. And maybe you should ignore most of this. I have no idea. But I am fascinated with how well it's worked in my life for me to use this kind of enchanted sort of lens to view how to make stuff because it feels like then when I'm making stuff I I have help you know and I end up with something better than I could have ever done through my own analysis solo and 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 this isn't a terribly new idea Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in her book Big Magic which I won't rehash here, but if you've never read it as a creative person, you absolutely should read it. Um, And I know that her beliefs around this stem from the Greeks and ancient Greeks and Romans who 100% believed that people don't make things, people channel things, that there is another dimension, another space that is in communication with us all the time, but that thing isn't going to yell. It is gentle and it is soft and it is delicate and it will not demand anything from you. So if you are going to hear it 
then you have to get out of the way and get slow and get quiet. And that can feel really counterintuitive when shit is hitting the fan as it is right now. But I'd like to suggest that that's exactly what we need. I mean, and I may be very wrong. <laughs> Let's just put that out there. But but I wouldn't say that it's irrational to suggest that that could very well be what we need. I was listening to sociologist, Harvard sociologist Martha Beck talking about societies from the beginning of time. And one of the things that she said was, when humans make societies, when they create societies, from the beginning of time, the ones that we know of, at least, the largest and most prominent ones have always been a pyramid where a very few have almost all of the resources and most of the people suffer at the bottom to support the few at the top. And even in the cases of revolutions that have been successful, like in our country, the the population just makes another pyramid again anyway. And why is that? I don't totally know. I'm sure there's a million reasons that I have no idea about. But I would like to suggest in the context of this episode and subsequent stories about canyon wrens and magical tornadoes and all of the weird things that Maybe it's because we keep making stuff completely disconnected from this other thing that has so much information for us, you know, that we're always trying to listen to our angry analysis and there's this gentle, soft other thing just waiting for us to listen, you know, and what would change in our culture if we made from that space? It's a little abstract, so let me kind of, I guess, wrap up with this story. I, when I left grad school, um, I decided that I was going to continue this method of just seeing what came into my space, feeling it out, and just throwing things against the wall and seeing what stuck. And the first thing that happened right after grad school was I got an opportunity to paint signs at Trader Joe's. And and I worked at Trader Joe's for two years and I learned a lot about making art in a commercial setting. And then I and then I started to feel really strongly that I missed waiting tables and I missed how easy it was for me to make my own personal art when I was waiting tables. And so then I just decided to throw that against the wall and see how that would work. And and then it did work and I was making a lot of money and I started making art on the side and I just d- decided, well, you know, I'm making all this money over here waiting tables. There's no pressure on me to make art for paying my bills. So I guess I'll just try a bunch of things that I love. And one of those things was black and white drawings of Austin. And someone suggested I turn them into a coloring book, which was weirdly this perfect marriage of all these things I love, which is meditation and mindfulness and democracy of mark making and abilities to interact with all different kinds of levels of makers and uh, 
So I turned this series of black and white drawings into an Austin coloring book. And within a year, I was, you know, making passive income in a wholesale business selling coloring books, as well as illustrating books for lots of organizations. And I don't identify as a coloring book artist anymore, but those first few years, I really did. And I remember people would laugh laugh at me, honestly, and say, who the fuck? <laughs> they wouldn't swear, but they might as well have sworn, right? They, they would, they would be surprised who, who sets out to be a coloring book artist. And I would always answer nobody. I, there's no way I could have created this on my own. There's no way I could have sat down with an outline and said, how am I going to work for myself in a way that's truly in alignment with me? That's also commercially successful. <laughs> no. I'm convinced that that fascinating beginning to my sole entrepreneurial career came from getting out of the way. That there was something else that was like, I know better. Let me take the reins here. You know? And I, I guess there's part of me that even felt hesitant to do this episode because. I feel silly that I don't, you know, I feel like I'm talking about these things as if they're so real and also they're so abstract. I, I, I immediately have this thought of people just sitting on the other end of this podcast thinking, what, what thing are you talking about? What, what takes the reins? Like, give me some clues, you know? And the answer is, I don't totally know, but I do know that trying things and feeling my way forward and looking for enchantment has been a tremendous compass that when I run into enchantment, I know I'm on the right track because that energy, that voice is gentle and, and soft. And, and when I'm able to hear it, I know that I'm in a really grounded, calm, good spot, honestly. And, and so, yeah, that's my case for enchantment. And an enchantment of, of all the things that we make. Like, I, I just posted an Instagram TV story um, this past Friday about teaching art this way to a group of Facebook employees last week. This particular group was eating it up. And I remember one of the women laughing and saying, oh, we're all crunchy granola. So this is like totally our jam. And I laughed because um, for some people, paying attention to whimsy and enchantment and magic and the things that bubble up when you make stuff is really glorious. And I think a lot of artists love that. Um, and this particular group was, you know, of those leanings. And so they were really into this very organic process, but it's not for everybody. Some people really need an outline and they need to control. And when, you suggest that they pay attention to signs and enchantment and what bubbles up in their subconscious when they try a bunch of things. That's just the worst. 
(laughs) But I'm convinced that that's a direction that's going to really help improve what we make individually and collectively in our society right now. And I want to talk especially to the artists listening to this who are just so into that. I, I know some people listening to this probably aren't into it. If people really aren't into it, they probably stopped listening a little while ago. <laughs> but for the people that can resonate with talking to a canyon run in the middle of nowhere or making art about this thing that just bubbles up in their subconscious seemingly for no reason as guidance for their next steps forward in life or whatever, I want to suggest that using that as a template for moving forward in lots of areas is really valid because I think that a lot of people don't view it as valid. Like this is a magical little hippie thing I do in my journal and If I want to like make a business or fix racism or look at my own shortcomings, I'm not going to do it through this mystical junk. I need to make an outline and execute the shit out of it because we don't have time to be screwing around. and, And for people that naturally screw around, and naturally relax into the tornado and naturally vibe with the things that just kind of come in. I guess maybe my hope was to be a little bit of a comforting voice in this episode to say, yeah, listening to enchantment is a valid business model. It has been for me. And it doesn't mean that I don't analyze stuff It doesn't mean that I don't use science and the scientific method and rational thought and data. No, like they're not in diametrical opposition to each other. Enchantment expands on those ideas. And and I think that there's a case to be made for the re-enchantment of not just art, but our lives in this way. And I don't totally know if I've really made a case for that, I when I sat down to do this episode, I felt um, I felt like this topic was already so amorphous that maybe it's not very concrete to suggest that enchantment is the way to go forward. But in some small ways, I hope that those stories provide some context for a slightly different way of approaching making things in your life and also in the world. This is the best time to try stuff differently. And I don't mean to, I don't know, I, as I was thinking about this episode, I was like, am I going to keep talking about these uncertain times every time I record one of these episodes? And the answer is no, I, I am getting ready to record an interview with a maker from Austin for the next episode. I'm very excited to share that with you soon. And I also have some people slated for recordings in August. So Secret Sauce is going to become more of a place for lots of makers to tell stories about their authentic ways of making in the world. But this is one of my authentic ways of making in the world. And I think that a lot of artists, whether they identify it, identify with it consciously or not, also can relate to making in this way of 
following the enchantment, following the magic and seeing where it takes them. And heck, if I could figure out a way to create a business course on how to use magic to (laughs) build your wealth or something, I would do it. Um, I'm not there yet. I'm still... I'm still in the phase of like using magic to build a mediocre salary, <laughs> but, um, but even that kind of blows my mind. If I'm being honest, I would never have thought that paying attention to these whimsies would have gotten me anywhere. And it's weirdly turned into one of the neatest business barometers I could have asked for. Yeah. Anyway, thank y'all. There is a link for our Patreon in the show notes as well as in the Instagram bio. Please consider subscribing and being a supporter of this podcast. Um, It is such an honor to tell stories here and also... uh, also, my work is is pretty much back to normal, so it's been tremendously helpful to have people choose to support through the Patreon because it allows me to continue to prioritize this work over other work. Um, and also, thank you for just listening. If if supporting financially is not um, an option, and I know it's not for a lot of people, please consider leaving a five star review, sharing with people that you think might be interested. It's tremendous. And also thank you for people that send messages about the episodes and stories that resonate with them because that kind of feedback helps me tremendously um, in such a new in such a new endeavor, you know. Ah, <sighs> do I sound so tired? I feel like I do. <laughs> and also my throat is so scratchy. I've been trying to fight coughing this entire episode because I don't know about, do y'all do this? Like when you hear someone hacking up a lung now, you're in the back of your head. I know all of you are thinking they have the Corona. (laughs) I was out biking this morning in Bastrop State Park and it was beautiful. And I was out in the middle of pine trees for, for two hours or something, but Saharan African dust is a total thing in July in Austin. And Dang, it's all up in my throat right now. So Um, I love y'all. Thanks for hanging with my tangents here at the end of this episode. And I'll see you next week. Peace.